A little bonus interview today. We haven't done an interview in a while, but I thought it might be a good change of pace to mix one in. We've got a few recorded that we're going to drop here and there around our core Wednesday episodes over the next few months. Today's interview will be interesting to most people, but absurdly helpful to a specific type of listener. I know this listener exists because you email me all the time asking about the problems that today's guest wrestled with and eventually solved. The listeners I'm talking about are the serious achievers. They're smart, they're driven, and they love their day job. They aren't actually chomping at the bit to start any company, but they've got an idea that almost feels like they've been picked to start, like they've been subconsciously preparing to start this business for years. These listeners are often also very risk averse. They won't just leave their job for an opportunity that isn't worth their time. It usually takes months and sometimes even years for them to pull the trigger on a startup idea. Today, we'll talk to Jonathan, the founder of OR, a crazy fast-growing telehealth startup helping people drink less or quit drinking altogether, and he was the poster child for this type of founder when he went through Tacklebox a couple of years back. If I just described you above, he's your blueprint. He was incredibly successful in his day job and very hesitant to quit it. He was admittedly risk-averse and had never started a business before. He knew what he didn't know, and he respected it. But at the same time, he saw an enormous gap in an enormous market. He saw a problem that needed to be solved, and he had seriously unique insight into how to solve it in a truly differentiated way. As I mentioned, he went through Tacklebox and he crushed it. He zoomed in on customer to build a specific, focused business while still keeping in mind the massive potential of addiction therapy. He did it all before he quit his job and made the transition from employed person to entrepreneur as smooth as anyone I've ever seen. This interview talks through how he moved from person with an idea and a job to the founder of a company with funding and employees and customers and crazy growth prospects. And most importantly, a company that is affecting people's lives. I'm pretty sure it'll be interesting for everyone, and I am confident it will be specifically helpful to that group of listeners I mentioned above, the ones who might need a little bit of a kick in the ass and a little bit of a roadmap. So let's get into Jonathan and Orr after a little smooth jazz. I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox, a monthly membership program that provides structure, strategy, and network for entrepreneurs testing and building startup ideas on the side. We help you flesh out and test your idea so you can understand its potential and start working purposefully towards that potential. We put everything we learned from seven years helping over 350 idea stage entrepreneurs build businesses that raised over 100 million bucks and are now worth nearly a billion into this program. It's a clear step-by-step path with target metrics that'll take you from idea to product. It's the thing I would have killed for when I was working on my idea without direction or a team, which is exactly why we built it. We're going to launch 250 businesses this year. One of those might as well be yours. Head to gettacklebox.com slash ideas to get the podcast listeners deal. And if you do, I'll see you on Wednesday at our one-on-one strategy session. Back to it. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's so good to see you again. Um, Let's start at the beginning. So let's start with the story of Orr and sort of where it came from and why you're interested in it. Well, the story of Orr really begins with my own story in that I struggled with alcohol use disorder pretty much my entire adult life. Uh, The pattern of my use was that I didn't drink every day. But when I did one or two drinks, too often got out of control and brought all of the 
kind of scary mental health, physical health, social, professional consequences that can go along with a substance use disorder. And it was no secret to me that I had a challenge with alcohol. So I sought treatment um, in a lot of different places over the years. Alcoholics Anonymous, therapy, um, emergency room, um, and pretty much always heard the same thing, uh, which was you need to quit right away. Um, and that never really stuck for me. I just wasn't able to do it um, until I was lucky enough to come into contact with a really skilled addiction medicine specialist who did two things that were at least new to me. Uh, one was supporting my goal of moderation rather than abstinence. And the second was suggesting medication as a tool in the arsenal to get there. And together, um, those things at that point in my life had a really transformational effect um, on my drinking and all of the positive knock-on effects that come from transforming one's relationship with alcohol. Um, but uh, it was also a little bit alarming to me that despite having worked in healthcare my entire career, having sought treatment in so many different places, this was a new approach. And therein lay the seeds of the idea that there might be a business in making effective treatment for addiction and compulsion approachable to the millions and millions of people like me that needed it. Amazing. And thank you for sharing that. I know that's got to be a tough founder story to start things off with, but um, it's really powerful, obviously extremely impactful. So at this time, you start to have, you mentioned that that you found this successful treatment and you were working in healthcare. What was your full-time job at, at the time? Yeah, so I was on the strategy team of a large national healthcare pair. Um, so, and, and that was kind of a, a, a job that was very kind of logical along a, a career path that I'd been following for a long time. Um, I'd been a product manager in healthcare before business school, but, but after business school had been in healthcare strategy in some form or fashion. Uh, for, for about 10 years uh, at a management consulting firm and then at national payers. Um, and so I had a lot of exposure to all elements of the healthcare value chain, uh, but um, much less experience running a business hands-on. I was an advisor. Very cool. So this is a business that has a lot of upfront blockers and challenges to it. It's one of the more overwhelming ideas that you can really think of. It's it's not clear how to really get started. Um, I'm sure your background in healthcare helped, uh, but what were you thinking during the early days? Like, what did you think the big challenges would be, and what were you thinking about? Like, well, if I can do X, Y, and Z, maybe this will make sense. Like, what were the what, what did you think were the biggest early blockers? I think there were three things that I had skepticism about and felt like I needed to prove the potential for. Uh, the first and the most important in my mind was, would uh, consumers, people like me who are in various stages of confronting uh, an issue of addiction or compulsion, feel comfortable seeking treatment via telemedicine? Two was, would physicians and other thought leaders in this area uh, come to view the sort of solution that we were offering, a medication-forward telemedicine option, as not only within the standard of care, 
but also actually something that could help a lot of people and was to the to the good of public health. And remember, we were thinking about this before telemedicine for everything kind of became the, the norm over the last uh, two years. And then the, the third was kind of a question of whether we could stitch together the component pieces that you need. Could we bring together the consumer, the healthcare clinician, the pharmacist that would need to fulfill the prescription all in one place, or at least uh, to the virtual equivalent of that. And when did you start thinking that this was something you could actually do? So you had this full-time job, you've got this idea that, um, you know, clearly you had the expertise to kind of start to attack, but when did it sort of transition into something real? It's going to sound like a little bit of a commercial, but I think it, it really was um, going through the the tackle box program that helped to close that gap between an idea, which was the sort of thing I, given my kind of past experience in consulting and strategy, was kind of pretty good at putting on paper and execution. Um, and and you know I think kind of going through the process of engaging with some initial customers, putting a partial concept in front of them. Um, those were the key steps that helped close what what felt like a, a gap that that kind of I was getting stuck on, which was I had some confidence that there was a viable business here, but going from an idea, a PowerPoint, an Excel model, and taking practical steps down that road, especially given that I knew there'd need to be a lot of steps taken to get this idea out the door, um, it, it was it was really that kind of talking to customers, talking to people in the field, starting to try to validate some of those key hypotheses that started to make it feel a little bit more real. So what did you hear from people when you spoke with them, um, both on sort of, you know, you've got a lot of sides to this business. So medical side, practitioner side, as well as the patient side. Um, how'd you get in touch with those people and what were you hearing? Because this is, um, I think, an, again, like another variable here that's tricky is if I'm starting a company that sells like coffee beans, I can, there's no problem to go find somebody at a coffee shop. Your customer is, is certainly not always open. Um, so how'd you find them? How'd you speak with them? And then medical side as well. Sure. Why don't we start with the customers? Um, sure. So I think the first um, conversations were with people who I knew and had observed patterns of alcohol use that weren't that different than my own. And, you know, I heard in those was validation of the awareness gap. Um, folks saying, really, there's this, there's a medication you can take that's FDA approved and indicated for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. And I don't have to give up drinking entirely if I don't want to, if that's not my goal. So that was encouraging, but um, didn't want to be overly reliant on my own network in drawing conclusions. And so, um, the probably the most helpful place to to find a, a broader set of folks was uh, small web-based communities like Reddit. Um, you know, there mm. are a few really active communities uh, of people who are in various stages of addressing addiction and taking various approaches. And I just privately messaged a few and said, you know, I'm working mm. on a, a business idea. Would you be willing to jump on the phone and give me some feedback? Um, and folks were extraordinarily generous with their time and their insights. Um, probably the most helpful conversations in that set were folks who had gone down a similar road to me, but also faced a lot of barriers. I remember um, one really thoughtful uh, graduate student who had struggled 
found his way to medication, but was almost like pushing me into going faster with this because he was so, so, um, you know, convincing and compelling that having this convenient, easily accessible option uh, without a lot of hoops together uh, to jump through could have um, made a real difference in his, in his educational path. Um, and then on the, the medical practitioner side, this is where a little bit of um, industry experience was probably helpful, um, but basically just reached out to physicians I knew personally and, you know, within one or two degrees of separation was talking with um, some of the leading experts in addiction medicine and um, some of the folks who've done some of the, the most important research on naltrexone, which is one of the, the drugs that's available through OR. And um, their feedback was really encouraging. You know, they validated, yes, it's not just you. There's, uh, this is one of the biggest systematic problems in the way that we treat addiction is lack of, of access to effective options. Yes, I'd feel comfortable driving this, this safe medication via telemedicine. Uh, yes, you should, you should go do this. <laughs> it, could, it could help a lot of people. So hearing all of that was, was very encouraging. Yeah, I think there's a few things I want to highlight. First, when you're working on a problem, if you have that sort of response from customers, the willingness to get on the phone and talk about it to like, in, in this case, a very personal issue, happily speaking with a stranger about your experience, the problems we look for are problems or that entrepreneurs should look for are the problems that are important, the problems that are painful, the problems that come up frequently, the problems that uh, are expensive, not necessarily just monetarily, but like to somebody's life um, that they're that they're not being solved. And so people should speak with you. And that's I think that's such a good proof point for people who are hesitating speaking with customers. They're going to be willing and excited to speak with you about it. This won't be an infringement on their day. The second thing I think is really interesting is I think that when you're starting a startup, ideally you have a secret weapon, like something that you know that other people don't. And it sounds like naltrexone was part of that. And I'm, the question you should ask yourself, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying if you are starting a business is like, why, why, why do I know this and other people don't? So I'm curious if you got to the bottom of why naltrexone and drugs like that weren't prescribed readily. It's probably the question I'm asked more more frequently than any that I feel like I have the <laughs> least satisfying answer for. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some reasons, but they're not going to add up to an adequate explanation of why this medication is so underprescribed relative to the need and the good that it can do. I think there are a few a few contributors. One is just lack of awareness among mm -hmm. consumers um, and even among some medical professionals. Uh, this drug's been around for for decades, but um, there was never a period where it was super lucrative for a pharma company to market it, and so mm -hmm. that results in in low awareness. Um, number two is a lot of clinicians who, in theory, are best placed to be prescribing frontline medication for alcohol use disorder feel uncomfortable treating addiction. So primary care uh, physicians, for example, um, some are wonderful at treating addiction, but many feel more comfortable referring to AA, which can help some people, but um, it is neglecting some other, some other useful tools that those PCPs uh, do have. And then the third big reason is that the uh, professional, the addiction treatment establishment 
um, has historically been a little bit averse or skeptical to the use of medication, and in some instances doesn't have the right infrastructure. So not every rehab program has uh, mm-hmm. physicians who are, are other licensed prescribers on staff, which makes incorporating medication into what otherwise might be a really holistic treatment approach much more difficult, obviously. But you know, I think, you know, those are, those are reasons, but I think even the, the leading experts in this field would say they're not adequate excuses for what is really appropriately seen as a tragedy of um, medication that could save lives um, mm. not being used as frequently as it should be. Hmm. And I, th- I, I wonder, too, if there's just an assumption from people who would be building in the marketplace that there are since like everyone's heard of AA and every, and it's such a visible problem. Like people maybe just assume it sort of reminds me of the Elon Musk thing where it's like batteries actually aren't, everyone just assumes that batteries are really expensive, but if you piece together the components, they aren't, and you can build a car around that. Um, I think that's dead on. And there's probably mm -hmm. a generalizable lesson there for folks who are are thinking about what a, a meaningful opportunity is. I think if there's, one of the things that's working best for ore is flying a bit in the face of culturally received wisdom about mm. what alcohol use disorder is and how you treat it. Um, it it's, it's not, you know, the, our, what we've been kind of conditioned, even in movies, TV shows, is, you know, either you're an alcoholic or you're fine. <laughs> um, and if you find yourself on that in that alcoholic bucket, you uh, need to go to you know one of uh, a small number of treatment options, and so mm-hmm. there's enormous potential to help people and meaningful business opportunity in confronting those those misconceptions. Amazing. Um, so let's jump into the tests. So like you now you've got, uh, and I, I have a little bit of like inside baseball here because I was um, working with you as you were doing this, but I remember specifically you being obviously like extremely talented at this stuff, but also very much skeptical that this was a business that was worth you leaving your job to start much to my chagrin in some situations. But, um, let's talk through some of the tests that you ran to try and prove to yourself that this was a thing worth your time. Yeah. So the, I think the most important was taking the leap of, um, just putting up some, some, Google search ads um, that tested some of the the core messages. There's still some of our best performing uh, messages today. Did you know that there is a medication that's approved for the treatment of alcohol use disorder? You can get convenient access to it. It can help you drink less or quit. Now, when we were running that first test, we were not in a position to be running a full telemedicine business, and it is uh, both illegal and irresponsible to be um, <laughs> sending sending uh, medication around the country if you uh, you know are not on on a proper regulatory footing. So we didn't do that. Um, what we what we did on the back end of those ads was just connect people uh, to existing providers. Um, I guess in on some edge cases, you could think of them as competitors to, to or I, I don't really, they were largely um, uh, sole practitioners who had a telemedicine practice that included um, prescriptions for naltrexone. So it was a, a kind of low cost, uh, both in terms of dollars and really in terms of the, the effort to get a telemedicine business up on its feet, um, a low cost way to see if there was demand out there. And then what you did, I think a part that 
that worries people before you've got a product to deliver is if you put these ads up and like you're the dog that catches the car, you get somebody, what do you do? And so it sounds like you solve that problem by passing along to people who had a product that was a proxy for the product that you were going to eventually have. Yeah, that's right. I think especially given the nature of the problem we were trying to confront, I didn't feel comfortable um, just saying, join a wait list and we'll let you know when we've got treatment available for you. That was actually really important to me that, that anyone who did respond positively to the signals we were putting out there, we could at least give them a helpful referral. So you've got some ads live, you've got a landing page to collect email addresses and you're suddenly in the mix. You're speaking with people, yeah. you're you're learning stuff. Like it's it's pretty incredible how fast you're able to or you were able to like get conversate deeper level conversations with like and start to segment the customers into like different buckets of like levels of intent and things that they done leading up to the Google search and like how close they were to needing a, a, a potential solution. So like it's amazing. You you very quickly are are, are sort of right in the thick of things. So I think the next step is before we figure out how to like execute on this is the the sort of elephant in the room in my mind, which is like, how the hell do you get these people medicine? Like, how do you what what is needed for that? And I guess your day job gave you insight into into what would be needed for that. But um, how were you thinking about that? Were you worried about that side of it or no? It was definitely on the list of things that I've, I've felt like I needed to build confidence in before launching a business around this. I think of any major item on the list, it was the easiest to check off. Mm. Um, I, I think I did that two ways. One is just by looking around and uh, I was not the first person to come up with the idea of mm. a uh, medication oriented telemedicine business. So there was, you can answer it kind of by uh, just example and look at a birth control or a hair loss or, a, or an erectile dysfunction. Um, offering and say, they figured it out. I'm sure we can too. Um, I wanted to go a little bit further than, than <laughs> that. And so what was helpful was um, getting on the phone with key potential partners, um, less with the goal of negotiating all the ins and outs of an agreement and more just getting to a reasonable level of conviction that, yeah, there are plausible partners out there to um, help get the medical practice set up uh, that, that actually delivers care to our patients, to uh, get the, the pharmacy orders in and, and fulfilled. Um, so that was, you know, I probably, if I invested 80% of the time in customer testing and conversations, maybe 10 or 20% in kind of the infrastructure partners and just assuring myself that they were out there. Amazing. And I think that that, for any... I think that's maybe one of the more counterintuitive parts about startups in general is that people assume that the hard thing will be the product. And I, in almost every scenario, the product is not hard or it, it's, it's not that it's not hard, but is there's like a very straightforward path for how to build most things. Whereas acquiring customers and intent and then pricing stuff, which we haven't talked about, like that is the tricky stuff. And that's what you need to spend your time on. So what do you do next? Did you take my advice, which was pushing you to quit your job immediately because of the response from the tests? Or did you break my heart for a little while longer and sort of continue to validate the idea while having your job and start to build that way? Yeah, much more so the latter. I think there were, <laughs> there were two factors that were um, prominent in my mind. 
One was that although, as you rightly said, the path to product was clear, um, it was not necessarily super quick um, Mm -hmm. or super cheap. And then the second um, was much more personal, which was I kind of self-diagnosed as having probably among the most risk aversion that you're going to find among prospective prospective entrepreneurs, uh, at least. And so I just had a gut sense that I wasn't ready to leave this job that I love, this full-time job Mm. that I loved for something that felt like it had some encouraging signals around, but like any new venture was far from a, a sure thing. So it was a pretty, so kind of the, it was a pretty clear in my mind that um, if the choices were quit my job to do this full time or not do it at all, I was going to opt for not do it at all. Mm. Um, But I didn't want to do that either. Um, And so I hunted pretty hard for a middle way. And I think that's probably a useful lesson for, for folks listening is if the, conventional or obvious options, option set um, is not appealing. And that's probably an impetus to do more research. Uh, And so the product of that research for me was to hone in on something in the neighborhood of a startup studio or accelerator that uh, could contribute resources as well as money to this venture. And of course, I'm kidding with the pushing you to to quit your job. I, I actually think the quality of risk aversion is underappreciated in the startup world. And I think that there are, you know, if you're a talented person, which you are, and you're a hard worker, which you are, you're probably going to have already found yourself to a job that you enjoy and have value from. And it's not going to be easy to just quit. Um, I'd say we far more often have entrepreneurs who love their job than entrepreneurs who hate their job. So I think this this is a really good use case. And it's sort of like is a theme that's flowing through where it's like Mm. the options for people for treatment was one way or the other, the options for startup. And you sort of find the path that makes the most sense for this. That that parallel had not occurred to me until I just (laughs) heard the words coming out of my mouth, but I think it's very true. Yeah. And it it works well. So, so um, maybe explain what a startup studio is and then talk about how you pursued uh, where you ended up. I may have to. Def- I may get the definition wrong, but I'll tell you about Nuco, where where I um, um, ended up. So Nuco is IAC's incubator platform, and so it's a team of developers, designers, brand strategists, kind of all the key functional experts that you would want around you um, to to launch a new business, at least in the the case of most new businesses, and they're mission is to partner with entrepreneurs um, from day zero. Um, so obviously they have to be selective in who they who they work with because there are a lot of folks who meet at least that um, criteria. But actually through through you, Brian um, connected with one of the, the leaders of that organization. And all of the factors that I think we've been talking about so far, some really encouraging testing signs, the reality that there was some intricate building to do to launch a, a business of this nature. And then my characteristics as a founder, including the level of risk aversion we just discussed, I think all of those came together into a, a confluence where it was 
pretty obvious that there was the potential to work together and um, ultimately really attractive to, to both me and to the NUCO um, team. So started building the, the MVP um, with them um, not, not too shortly after kind of all that testing we were talking about. So you're sort of able to build a team around you without needing to go through and hire people and negotiate contracts and figure out how to pay them and all that sort of thing. Um, you sort of have like a team in a box. Exactly. And a lot of expertise. Um, you know, I, I, you know, was probably the, you know, healthcare and alcohol use disorder expert on that, on that team. Um, but there were elements of the product engineering marketing, um, experience that I had very little expertise in and really learned a ton from the new code team on. Awesome. Um, Let's talk through those early customers now. So you start to like build the infrastructure to build this product end to end and actually deliver product uh, yeah. to customers. And, and you sort of all of a sudden have, I think this is a funny thing when you speak with entrepreneurs because there's so much work that goes into getting to the point where you're at day one. Um, but day one is once a customer pays you and, and uses the product and decides whether it worked or not. Um, yeah. And... So, so how did that all happen? Like, what were the big things that needed to happen? Any lessons or learning in that, in, in, in those early days of building out the product? I think the, the, so the, we started, uh, we were lucky in that we started to uh, get customers kind of once we had a product um, to offer them. I think kind of we were reasonably, we were thoughtful about not launching until we had a uh, solution that could could meet folks needs um, so they were able to come to the site um, consult with a physician or nurse practitioner get a personalized treatment plan get a prescription if medically appropriate and have that medication delivered to their door i would not have felt comfortable launching without all of those uh components i think the the and so we started to get some kind of very positive consumer feedback from the start start to learn about um more deeply about why folks were coming to us at the same time um i think the the big uh lesson learned from those early days was you gotta anticipate folks who aren't going to follow the happy path so mm -hmm. um of, of the product um, and so the, the best example of that is like, you know, one, it's a small one, but it's, but it's telling is in, in telemedicine, one of the things you got to do is verify that the person you're providing medical care for is who they say they are. Um, and so collecting and, and validating identification is an important necessary step. We were doing that. Um, but I think we <laughs> failed to anticipate how many people would struggle with uploading their driver's license and a selfie. Um, it, it just didn't, we just missed it. Um, and so patients ended up kind of getting caught in this unpleasant cul-de-sac of not being able to correct that simple threshold thing. We were doing the, the important and, and hard stuff we missed in the first go around, um, where people would actually, uh, get, um, hung up. And so I think, you know, that was the big lesson learned was, um, think about every step in the journey and where it could go wrong. <laughs> mm. It's funny you mentioned that when I worked, um, I worked in, uh, at Johnson Johnson sort of briefly in their internal venture venture group. And I remember seeing like 
so many of the the tech products that came in were all around ensuring that people actually took their medication and like letting doctors know that these people had in fact take their taken their medication or not and it was like the biggest hurdle in 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 healthcare and maybe I'm I'm exaggerating slightly but it was one of the biggest hurdles was to make sure that there's transparency into like whether people took their medication or not and like that it just seems so simple but to your point there are a lot of things that can get you can get hung up on and um that's an interesting one um what about prioritizing early um there are so many things that you could be focused on how, how do you think like what's the hierarchy in your mind and how did you choose what to attack yeah i think i think this is so i, I just gave you an example of something we screwed up um i think <laughs> i think prioritization is something we've done pretty well and I think it, the, the root of that success is having a strong hypothesis and alignment around that hypothesis as to what matters um, in whatever business you happen to be in. Um, and so for us, a few of those big things that we're really focused on are understanding the unit economics of the business building a rich consumer experience that that folks are see great value in and are loyal to and will refer others to and then one that we haven't quite tested yet is um, seeing how well this model that we've built in alcohol use disorder works across other areas of addiction and compulsion now taking on all three of those at once um, would be would be overwhelming and so i think one of the most important things we did was not just stack those in the sequence that I described, but then break down unit economics, which was the first that we tackled into its component parts mm. and start with acquisition. And so that's what we focused on first was mm. um, how can we make um, the, the process of coming to us, learning, trusting us, having that initial consult with a physician, uh, getting set up with a prescription as seamless as possible. There are a lot of steps in there. We need to collect people's medical history, their drug history, in order to make a um, responsible, enable the clinician to make a responsible prescribing choice. Um, and so just that kind of uh, testing different versions of the intake flow, different messages, uh, different experiences, that was our first priority. Um, but that came from starting with kind of a big view of the universe and honing in. Um, and, you know, now, six months, a year later, we're in an interesting place where we'll always be working on acquisition and trying to optimize it, but do have the bandwidth and resources to tackle other um, priorities um, in, a, in a meaningful way. But we wouldn't have got there if we didn't, if we weren't kind of rigorous about not doing too much at the, at the start. I love that. I think it, it would be so easy to sort of split your day up and say, well, we're going to spend 20 minutes on each of these 37 problems that we've got. Um, but creating that the three big buckets and then choosing the bucket that's most important. And within that, the biggest bottleneck or the biggest thing that you've got to optimize or quote unquote productize to make sure that you can move on to something else. Um, it's great. Um, well, let's, let's end with a couple of, of questions that I think will be helpful from, um, from the audience perspective. So more about general things you've done well um, and, and things that might be helpful for people to know. So like, I wonder if there's anything that you've done that would be sort of 
you know, company or, or business agnostic, so not specific to or, but any anything that you've done that had enormous outsized impact. So like something relatively small or focused that drove a ton of value for you that other people might be able to benefit from regardless of startup idea. I think kind of a key moment for us that um, really accelerated our progress was connecting with one of the leading physicians in the use of naltrexone and his excitement and enthusiasm about the idea. And we still work mm. with them as our chief clinical advisor. That may not sound generalizable at all, but here's where I'm going with it. Um, I think not being afraid to ask for an introduction that may feel a level or two above who you're ready to talk to. Mm. I, I, I didn't feel like I was ready to, especially in some ways, this is how having worked in healthcare was a disadvantage in this way. And like, I felt like, oh, you know, you know anyone with a, a doctor in front of their name, you know, you really need to <laughs> you know, be at a certain level of success and credibility um, to have a conversation with them. Um, luckily, Josh is not a, not a guy who stands on ceremony in regard to his title or training. Um, so I think that, you know, I would say finding early on that one or two key advisors who can round out your perspective and just give you the confidence to run in at least a direction mm. really had a lot of value for us. I love that. I'll ask one more. I love this question. I've asked this a bunch. Um, if you had a billboard that entrepreneurs had to pass on the way to work each day and they were sort of forced to take in this message every day on their way to work, what do you think you would put on that billboard? And I'll extend the question a little bit longer to give you a second to think about it because I know it's a hard one. I think it would say, keep going. <laughs> and then the, the, the text beneath that would say that will and energy are probably more important than intelligence. I love that. And I love the consultant in you coming out with the header and the subheader. Um, for the, for the PowerPoint slide. Um, Jonathan, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. And I'm, I'm just so happy that the business is going as well as it is. Um, I, I'm just like the way you've attacked this has been amazing. So thank you for coming back and coming on and uh, good luck with everything in the future. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs>